If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. A significant passage, one in which the gospel authors return to time and time again, as Moses himself declares that there is coming a day when one greater than Moses would speak God's words. And Moses' exhortation to the people is this, hear him, listen to him. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19 Moses, under inspiration of the Spirit, says this, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. How significant it is that when Jesus appears on the scene, that you hear the voice of the Father speak from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, hear him. The Father Himself echoing the words that He spoke to Moses long ago, that this is the promised prophet greater than Moses who acts as the mediator between God and man. So now if you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, as we hear our Savior speak. I was reviewing our old bulletins this past week and decided to See, when we began looking at the Sermon on the Mount, April 10th of 2022. Uh, And here we are, nearly a year to the day uh, later, just a few weeks short. And we come to the conclusion of uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. What Matthew tells us is Jesus' sermon that he went throughout the countryside preaching over and over again. And yet this morning we're going to focus on a particular facet of the sermon the crowd's response to the sermon in its totality. If you want to think of it like this, we have been making our way through the woods and the forest, looking at the individual trees over the past year. But now it's time to take a step back and examine the full thing. Get a panoramic snapshot as uh, we consider the crowd's response to all of Jesus' words here. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read Matthew 5-7 to in its entirety. It takes about 15 minutes, but I want you to remember this. And you can read along if you want, but more importantly than reading, I'd ask that you would listen. And imagine if you were the crowds on that particular day hearing Jesus speak, to notice and try to consider why it is that they respond the way that they do. It's going to take us about, again, 15 minutes or so to read through it. You think about this sermon, 15 minutes long that Jesus preaches. It packs quite a punch, but we have to consider the response. I know it's, I know it's a large chunk, but 
what else have we come here for? Even as Hebrews 12 reminds us that when we assemble on the Lord's Day for worship, whenever the Word is preached, whenever it is read, it's not simply the minister speaking. It is Christ Himself who speaks to us. So I want you to recognize, and and not just put yourself in the place of Israel or the people of God 2,000 years ago, but recognize we're in the exact same position that the crowds were then on that day that Jesus spoke on the mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you are offering your gift at the altar and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to to court. Lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent is already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
and that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him for two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than them? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your room. Shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one could serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. They beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now coming to chapter 7 verse 28, we hear the crowd's response. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord and ask that he bless the reading and preaching of it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to your word this morning and hear such a large portion of scripture, uh, we ask that uh, you would imprint upon our hearts the authority of Christ, that we might understand who Christ is, and not only what he has taught. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Thomas Jefferson, in 1803, wrote a letter to one of his friends, a man by the name of Joseph Priestley. Uh, the particular contents of that letter regarded Thomas Jefferson's own thoughts on the Gospels, particularly on the nature of of Jesus Christ. And in this particular letter, uh, Jefferson begins to speak uh, in particular about the Sermon on the Mount. He writes and he says this, that he finds the moral doctrines found in this sermon to be of the most remarkable of the ancient philosophers of whose ethics we have sufficient information to make an estimate of. He likens it to that of Socrates and Cicero, to Seneca and others. He continues to say this, that Christ's system of morality was the most benevolent and sublime probably that has ever been taught, and consequently more perfect than any of those ancient philosophers. A few weeks later, he writes to another friend of his, uh, Benjamin Rush, one of the American, uh, another one of the founding fathers. And in commenting on his previous letter to Dr. Priestley, he adds this comment. Thomas Jefferson says, I am a Christian in the only sense that Christ wished anyone to be. Sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others, ascribing to himself every human excellence, and yet, believing that Christ never claimed to be anything other than human. He says, and he claimed that Christ, being a member of the Godhead, is something that is foreign 
to Christ's teaching. How significant it is that Thomas Jefferson, when he reads the Sermon on the Mount, he says, oh, this is wonderful in its doctrine, and I receive it in its entirety, but not the person of Christ. Great teaching, and yet he falls short. We continue to read uh, throughout history. You could find replicated sentiments like Thomas Jefferson. Gandhi, for instance, says this, what does Jesus mean to me? To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity ever had. And yet, when Gandhi comes to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, this sermon went straight to my heart. And yet, sometime after hearing Christian missionaries preach against uh, Gandhi's Hindu gods, Gandhi's response to them was, I like Christ, but not your Christianity. You think of Albert Einstein, and a letter to one of his friends says, I seriously doubt that Jesus himself believed that he was God. But then he adds, if one purges Christianity as Jesus Christ taught it, one is left with a teaching which is capable of of curing all the social ills of humanity. Uh, Here we have uh, the opinions and testimony of three distinct individuals. One, a deist. One, a pantheist. And the other, an agnostic. Looking in particular at the Sermon on the Mount and claiming that the teachings here are great. And the teacher is great. And yet he is nothing more than a great teacher. I think for many who give a superficial reading to the Sermon on the Mount, you might walk away with a similar impression. And yet we find in the audience's reaction here in chapter 7, verse 28, this is not how the audience received Christ's own sermon. Verse 28, it says that they marvel at his teaching, and yet what is it that they marvel at his teaching about? Do they marvel on account of his pristine philosophical system and his immaculate worldview? It certainly is pristine. It certainly is immaculate. But what we find here is that is not what stuns the audience. Are they astonished on account of the moral perfection that is required and given in this particular sermon? As we've heard from the lips of Jefferson and Gandhi and Einstein, even the brightest of pagans admit the pristine character of this sermon. And yet, here, this is not what shocks the crowds. Are they amazed and shocked at the illustrative pizzazz and the rhetorical power of the sermon? One would certainly admit that it has vivid illustrations, but that is not what overwhelmed the people. We see that Matthew summarizes the crowd's marvel at a particular facet of Jesus' teaching here. And it's summed up in this word, His authority. That is what causes their jaw to drop. I think the question we must ask as we take a step back and consider all of what Jesus has said is how does Christ demonstrate his authority in this sermon? For if we were simply to take the lessons of the sermon superficially received as Jefferson took them, as Einstein took them, as Gandhi took them, 
we would miss the point that Jesus is driving home about the nature of who he is and where he stands in relation to the law and the prophets. And it reminds us that we cannot accept Jesus' teaching while rejecting his person. It is impossible. It is a whole package deal, all or nothing. There are seven statements that Jesus makes in this sermon regarding the nature of his authority that we must give consideration where as we read this sermon and as we hear this sermon, we must recognize what Jesus is saying not only about our duties, but about who he is. And it is these statements about who he is that causes the people to marvel. The first thing I'd like us to recognize is that Christ demonstrates his authority with respect to his relation to the heavenly blessings that he pronounces the opening of this sermon. Now, Jesus, of course, is not the first person to pronounce blessings on the people of God. Every Lord's Day, the priests were uh, commanded by God himself to pronounce that ironic benediction on the people of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The pronouncement of blessing is the very pronouncement that begins that, uh, by which the Psalter begins, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Moses pronounces blessings upon the people of God for all who walk in his ways. The prophets pronounce blessings upon the people of God if they but repent and turn to him in faith. And yet there is something significantly different about the nature of Jesus' blessings that he pronounces here in the opening portion of this sermon. You notice this, that in these distinct blessings, these beatitudes, it all hinges on a particular thing, one's relationship to Christ himself. Notice that last blessing. Blessed are you for being persecuted, not for being persecuted for Moses' sake, not for those uh, who are being persecuted for Torah's sake, Not for those who are being persecuted for the sake of democracy or Western civilization, but Jesus says, blessed are you when you are being persecuted for my sake. Not only that, but Jesus speaks and says that the way in which the prophets of old were persecuted, he says that they were persecuted for Christ's sake, even centuries before Christ were to come onto the scene. Consider what it would be for the first time here who would hear that statement. It would be the equivalent of hearing you know, somebody say that you know, George Washington was persecuted for James's sake. You'd say, what is it about James then that, that George Washington suffered uh, what he did? And yet that's what Jesus is saying, that the prophets are somehow subservient to him, that the sufferings that they went, underwent are sufferings for the sake of Christ. Tips are, this is no mere prophet. And to hear the blessings that Jesus promises are not like the blessings that you hear by Moses. He pronounces blessings on the people of God, saying if you're obedient, you'll eat of the fruit of the land. You will have rest from your enemies. You will be prosperous and have great success. A, a, A focus in one sense on material prosperity, and yet the blessings that Jesus gives focuses not on material prosperity, but on a heavenly reward. 
There's something different about Jesus who speaks here. And the blessings that he gives, the blessings that are pronounced are contingent upon the individual hearer's relationship to him. Second thing to notice is Christ's relationship to the law itself. Notice that Jesus does not simply exposit the law like any of the other scribes. He stands over it. Chapter 5, verse 17, look at it. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. It's not something that Moses had ever said. Moses has never said, I have come to fulfill the law before you these days. It's not something that David ever said in the eyes, in the sight of the people of God. It's not something that Isaiah said. None of the prophets made such a claim. What we see is that for the human race, the law exposes how short we have fallen of it. Not that we had fulfilled it. And yet Jesus comes in relation to the law, and as he stands in relationship to it, he does not say that he has fallen short of the law, but he is the sole one who has come to fulfill all that the law of Moses requires. Makes him greater than Moses. Makes him greater than the prophets. Jesus is declaring that he has come to accomplish something that has never been done before. Not only by his acts, in terms of what the law requires, but also in terms of what the law foretells and portends of the Messiah to come. Jesus is both the subject and the object of the law. He is the one who speaks through the prophets concerning his own person and work, as 1 Peter 1 reminds us. In fact, Jesus says that heaven and earth cannot pass away until all that he has come to do is accomplished. Well, what is it that the prophets had said would happen when heaven and earth passes away? When the old heavens and the old earth pass away, the new heavens and the new earth come to pass. In other words, what is it that Jesus is saying? That the new heavens cannot be inaugurated until he fulfills all righteousness. What other person has spoken like this? Here, Jesus stands one who is saying that he is bringing all of human history to its stunning climax. And we cannot overlook the statements that Jesus is making. And notice that they're almost like he peppers it throughout this sermon. These kind of almost off-the-cuff statements. And he repeatedly keeps saying something about the nature of who he is and the authority that he possesses that is unlike anything that any of the other expositors of the law have ever said before. Not only that, you see in verses 19 and 20 that one's greatness in this coming kingdom is contingent upon a response not to the commands of Moses, but to Christ's own commands. Anyone who fails to heed my teachings, he who who relaxes the teachings to the littlest, the teachings that I say, the teachings that I command will be called least, In the kingdom of heaven, here stands one greater than Moses. It leads to a third thing as Jesus stands greater, not only uh, with respect to the law, but it also points to Jesus' own relationship to the prophets. I mentioned this before about a year ago when we made it our way beginning uh, in uh, chapter 5, verse 17, through the end of that chapter. The prophets of old would always come to the people of God preface with this particular phrase, thus says the Lord. Yet not once do we ever hear Jesus say, thus says the Lord. 
Rather, six different times in this sermon, Jesus says, you've heard it was said, quoting the law, quoting Moses, but I now say to you, how significant it is, Jesus doesn't come having, have to come saying, thus says the Lord. He comes saying, I am telling you. Identifying himself with God himself. Here is one who possesses an authority greater than Moses, one greater than the prophets. In other words, he is not simply a lawyer, but he is the legislator. He is not simply the legal interpreter. He is the great law giver. Moses and the prophets warned of earthly punishments, that of famine, plague, exile from the land. But here Christ uh, warns in this sermon several times of eternal consequences. The everlasting fires of hell itself. In fact, if you were to survey the Scriptures, you'll find that no person in Scripture speaks about hell more passionately, more often than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the hippie Jesus. This is not the Christ of Gandhi. This is not Gandhi's religion. Jesus for certain preaches of solid joys and lasting treasures as he, try, as he begins to train our hearts to set our affections on the things that are above. But he also comes attending with that the warnings of real fire and brimstone, of weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who reject his words and the instruction that he gives. And yet, even as he gives these real warnings, not just of temporal judgment, but of everlasting judgment, it's not the declamation of a cold, heartless jurist. In the exact same sermon, Jesus comes, and this brings us to our fourth point, speaking of the great love of the Father. Here, Christ's relationship to the Father is put on full display what intimacy that Christ demonstrates. Even as he speaks of the realities of hell in the same sermon, he exults in the tender care of your heavenly Father. Notice this. No prophet before has ever done this. He does not only speak of your God. He speaks over and over again of your Father In other words, through the ministry of Christ, as he comes to inaugurate and proclaim the coming of the kingdom, there is in one sense a a shift in status from the tribunal, the courtroom, to that of the household. That in some way, through one's relationship to Christ, one's relationship to the Father changes. And Jesus does not simply give this in a dry, dusty, academic fashion, but in practical terms. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Why? Because your Father cares for you. Seek first this kingdom. It's a kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that in this world will be marked by tribulation and suffering and anguish. Rather, set your sight, set your affection, set your appetite on heaven, and everything else will be thrown in. Your Father in heaven will will provide for you all that you need for life and for godliness. 
Don't pray for prestige. Rather, shut your door and know that the maker of heaven and earth hears your cries in secret and that he longs to commune with you. For he hears the cry of the lonely and the afflicted. Here, him who is the everlasting son by nature has come to make us sons of our heavenly father by grace. Here he offers real, real rewards, that chief reward being God himself, and yet real warnings for those who fail to heed the call. It leads us to the fifth point. As Jesus speaks with authority of his relationship to this world. You see that in chapter 7. Where Christ declares himself to be the judge of heaven and earth. The judge of all. He speaks of the last day where sitting on that throne is but one figure. It's not Moses. It's not Abraham. It's not the prophets. It's not David. It's not even the angels. It is Christ who grants entrance into the heavenly kingdom. It is Christ who excludes into the outer darkness those who have not been made fit and ready for heaven. And what is the basis of this entrance? What is the basis of this exclusion? Whether or not that person knows and is known by Christ. As Jesus says, as he sits on that throne on that last day, I will say to you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. As Paul himself tells um, the, the pagans at Mars Hill that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here, standing before the crowds, is one who is granted the power and right uh, uh, to right every wrong on the last day. Here is one standing before the crowds who proclaims that he has been given the sole executive right to punish sin and to reward those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the, that's the claim that Jesus is making in this sermon. That he stands over the world in its totality. Not only over this world, but over the world to come. It's the sixth point. As Jesus gives only hints here that he elaborates more fully in future sermons of his. Enter by the narrow gate. And what does he say later? John's Gospel, I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the sole entrance to heaven. Anybody who tries to enter by any other path is a hireling, is a robber, is a thief, and is a liar. Jesus says it all hinges on me. He is the sole entrance to everlasting bliss. He tells us the path we must tread if ever we are to escape the coming wrath. And that's what leads us to the final thing that Jesus says about himself. That he is the rock upon which we build our lives. He is the basis upon which a man's life stands or falls. It comes by knowing Christ. We considered even last week when the rains come down and the floods come up, Jesus is echoing the language of Ezekiel, speaking of the final judgment. When the final judgment comes, who will withstand 
the coming tide. That final flood that, that douses the whole world, not in water, but in flame. Jesus says, I am the rock, and he who builds his life on me, he who hears what I have said and responds in faith, will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. You try to build your, your life on any other foundation, you will not survive the coming judgment. In other words, Jesus speaks of his relationship to the wrath to come, that he is the sole rock of refuge. There is no other. Seven statements that Jesus makes about himself. Seven categories, his relationship to the law, his relationship to the prophets, his relationship to his father, his relationship to this world, his relationship to the world to come, his relationship to the coming wrath and the great blessedness and the heavenly reward that will be found on the last day. They all indicate this, that the man standing before the crowds this day as he preaches to the crowds, this beautiful sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is no ordinary teacher. It's the very thing that Thomas Jefferson got wrong. It's the very thing that Mahatma Gandhi got wrong. It's the very thing that Albert Einstein got wrong and so many others who simply think that Jesus is presenting to the crowds an ethical system. Because even as he speaks of an ethical system and in their duties, it always hinges on a particular thing, the person and work of Christ. And as the crowds hear it for the first time, as they hear the sermon, as Jesus proclaims the, 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 the message of the kingdom, They hear it, and Matthew records their astonishment and their response is that they are not simply astonished at at, at the beauty or elegance of Christ's rhetoric or at the uh, the whole system of philosophy or, or any other thing. They are astonished at his authority because the way in which he speaks distinguishes him from any other philosopher, distinguishes him from any other teacher. It distinguishes him from any other scribe, and to miss this is to miss the entire point of Jesus' sermon. Simply put, there is no kingdom apart from Christ. What Christ gives to us is not a bare philosophical system. What Christ gives to us is no common morality What Christ offers is himself as king of a people. And for those who turn to him, he offers them life and righteousness. Why? Because he possesses the authority to do so. He possesses an authority that has been given to no other man on the face of the earth. This here is Matthew's great concern is the authority of Christ, not simply as teacher, but as when we now move to the next section in Matthew's gospel over the coming months, particularly chapters 8, 9, and 10. The focus is not simply on Christ's authority as teacher, but as Christ demonstrates his authority to bear and to banish every kind of sickness and every sort of disease, as Christ possesses authority over all nature, even the wind and the waves obey him, where Christ possesses the sole authority to pardon sin, a pardon that he grants freely and fully to whoever turns to him. Here Christ possesses the power to reclaim body and soul even back from the grave as he raises a little girl from the dead. And he possesses the power to lay down his life, he will say, and to take it up again. 
as Matthew brings our attention to the full orb nature of Christ's authority, not simply as teacher, but of his authority over the forces of nature and of supernature, as it were, and his power and authority over death and hell itself. It leads us to ask, who is this who possesses such authority? Who is it who stands before this people declaring himself to be greater than Moses, who declares himself to be greater than the prophets, who declares himself to be the king of Israel and the judge of the nations, who declares himself to be the lawgiver, the lawgiver and the consummate prophet, who declares himself to be the son of God and the way, the truth, and the life. And it all comes down to this, and it is this question that we must reckon with. What do you make of Christ? Is he simply a good teacher? Or is he something more? I encourage you to wrestle with these three chapters in the coming weeks and months. Not only in the uh, statements that Jesus gives on our particular duties, but as it drives us back to his statements about who he is. Is the most important question that you will ever ask. If you think that Jesus is simply just another prophet along the way, if you think he is just simply another good teacher, you have missed the mark, you have missed the point, and on the last day, you will be in for a rude awakening. When Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And yet we see in all of his glory, Jesus begins this sermon by making those pronouncements of blessings to those who are suffering and weak, to those who are mourning and weary, to those who are, who are suffocating under the burning weight of affliction and tribulation. Jesus declares that he is one who has the authority to deliver you. One who possesses the authority to bless you, not just for this life, but the one who possesses the authority in heaven and on earth to bless you for the world to come, because it is in him and him alone that all life and all blessedness is found. This is the authority of Christ, and this is what he says concerning himself. May we believe it by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless uh, your word. And as we give attention to the statements and the claims that Christ makes about himself, we pray that you would give us uh, hearts that are willing to believe that we would trust in Christ and his exalted status as our Redeemer, as our prophet, priest, and King. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.